0: invite you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 19 Uh, once more. Revelation 19, and this morning we'll look at verses 6 through 10. But in the first several verses of this 19th chapter of Revelation, uh, the word hallelujah is quite prominent, and it's used four times. And the only place in the New Testament where you will find this word is here in this chapter. But that word hallelujah takes two Hebrew words, uh, which simply means praise the Lord. And so hallelujah, this is a term that's universal no matter the language. No matter the culture, the context, the language, uh, hallelujah is praise of the Lord. And John is given a vision of a heavenly multitude, and they are singing the hallelujah chorus. And they're shouting hallelujah because man's rebellion has ended, God reigns, and the marriage of the lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And so this is a text that invites us to a wedding celebration. Now, there's a lot of imagery throughout the Bible. Uh, Marriage is often used as an image all throughout Scripture. And a wedding was the greatest celebration that was known in the ancient world. It was the greatest event that happened in the lives of people, and, and it still is uh, for the most part. Families spent more time, more effort, and more money on a wedding than any other event in their social calendar. And many of you would say, well, there's not much changed, because that still seems to be the case. I read where, um, according to the the Guinness Book of World Records, the most expensive wedding ever officially recorded took place in Versailles, France back in 2004. And if you can imagine this, it racked up a mind-boggling $55 million price tag. And the bride's father was an Indian billionaire who made his fortune in the steel industry. At the time, he was the third richest man in the world. And so the lavish wedding for his only daughter, this lasted six days, included an engagement reenactment in the prestigious Palace of Versailles. There was a fireworks display. There was a concert by some famous pop singer at the Eiffel Tower, a ceremony in a chateau which was once owned by King Louis XIV's minister of finance. 1,000 guests were in attendance Each one flown from India to Paris on 12 private jets and accommodated in a plush five-star hotel at the cost of $2 million. Can you imagine such a lavish, lavish celebration? And someone says, well, why all the expense when it comes to weddings? Well, because weddings are among the most joyous occasions in life. And it's a wonderful thing to join in celebration with a bride and a groom as they embark on the journey of marriage. And the wedding is merely a celebration of the marriage itself, and in most instances, it's a ceremony which lasts no more than 30 minutes compared to a union which lasts until death do us part. And it's unfortunate that some couples give all of their attention to the wedding, but they give no serious thought to the marriage. And so far from being an invention of man, uh, marriage is God's idea. And yet he ordained it as an earthly institution, which is to reflect a heavenly reality. There's a great profound spiritual truth that is reflected through Christian marriage now you know that there are several weddings described throughout the pages of Scripture. The very first was performed by God himself there in the Garden of Eden, uh, the union between Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 29 uh, tells us about a very unusual wedding in which the groom found out the next morning that he had married the wrong woman. It was actually his, the one he wanted to marry, his sister. One of the most beautiful weddings that we read about in scripture was the one that took place between Ruth and Boaz in the little book of Ruth. One of the most tragic weddings was the one that took place in 1 Kings chapter 16 between King Ahab of Israel who married the Sidonian princess Jezebel. And it became a terrible thing for the people of Israel as the couple drugged the nation into idolatry. Uh, Even His first miracle that He performed, Jesus turned water into wine there at a wedding celebration in Cana. And yet of all the weddings that have ever taken place in Scripture or in history, none are as wonderful as the wedding that we read about here in Revelation chapter 19. And it's the wedding which will one day take place between the Lamb and His bride. And this is the wedding of which all other weddings are merely a shadow and ultimately point to. And so it's the reality of Christian marriage that points us to this marvelous relationship that the church, the bride of Christ, has with her groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. So let's read beginning with verse number 6 of Revelation chapter 19. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This morning, I want us to look at the marriage supper of the Lamb that the Apostle John describes for us here in this 19th chapter of Revelation. Now, you know that every wedding has several key participants, the most obvious being the bride and the groom. The wedding party usually consists of their family members and close personal friends who are bridesmaids or groomsmen or what have you. There's the father of the bride. He's the one who foots the bill. There are guests who are in attendance, who are there to witness the union of this special couple. Well, in a similar way, there are some key participants in the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's God the Father who has planned and provided everything. There's the bride who's being described, which is the church made up of the redeemed from the church age. And then notice there are also guests who will be in attendance, guests who were invited. And this is a reference to those saints from the Old Testament era, as well as those who come to faith in the tribulation period itself. And then at last, you have the lamb who is the groom, and he's the center of all attention. He's the one who's appearing, and soon arrival is eagerly being anticipated by those in heaven. And so there's a very real sense in which all of uh, revelation prior to this has brought us to this climactic moment, the marriage supper of the lamb when Jesus Christ is about to return and establish his kingdom. His return is going to be described in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. And then his glorious kingdom is going to be the subject uh, in chapter 20. And so this is the moment that all of history has been anticipating. If you want to know what the world is coming to, if you want to know where history is moving, it's moving to this climactic moment, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so notice uh, what this event will involve. Number one, it will involve what I'm calling the exaltation of God the Father. You'll notice that this is really a joyful, uh, triumphant, uh, celebratory passage of Scripture, unlike the previous chapters in Revelation that describe God's judgment on an unbelieving world. God has judged the unbelieving system of the Antichrist and unbelieving humanity known as Babylon. And that's been described in chapters 17 and 18. Well, here in the opening chapters of, or the opening verses of chapter 19, John hears heaven singing hallelujah because God has judged uh, the unfaithful. Uh, he has judged man's evil system. And and heaven is singing hallelujah because this is the moment for which all of human history has been waiting. It's the moment when the sons and daughters of God are going to be revealed. And we're going to rule and we're going to reign with Christ when he returns to establish his kingdom. In fact, it was this very passage of scripture from which George Frederick Handel received his inspiration for his hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the omnipotent, reigneth. God is beginning to reign. That's what's being celebrated here in this passage. The rule of heaven has now come to earth with the second coming of Jesus. And when he comes again, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, will take back from the usurper what rightfully belongs to him. Warren Wiersbe says of this, he says, God has been reigning on the throne of heaven, but he's now about to conquer the thrones of earth as well as the kingdom of Satan and the beast. In his sovereignty, he has permitted evil men and evil angels to do their worst, but now the time has come for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's a very real sense in which uh, the Lord's prayer is going to be answered uh, with this event Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And isn't this desperate? This is what we long for as the people of God. We long for his kingdom to come. We long for his will to be done on earth without opposition, just as it's being done in heaven. Well, that, that prayer is going to be answered with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, he's the lamb and he is the bridegroom the father of the bridegroom. In his own sovereign purpose, he selected the bride. He's prepared the wedding. He sent out the invitations. In fact, there are several places throughout the gospels where we're told that Jesus is the bridegroom. John chapter three, uh, verse 29, when John the Baptist is told that there are more followers, Jesus is beginning to gather more followers. The people were leaving John's ministry uh, attracted to Jesus' ministry. John said this, he said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly in his voice. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, when the Pharisees were trying to find fault with the disciples because they did not fast, here's how Jesus replied to them. Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Uh, there are several parables that Jesus told to illustrate these spiritual truths. In fact, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22 for just a moment. And the parable of the wedding feast. It's found in the first part of Matthew chapter 22. Jesus spoke to them in parables. Parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. Here the king is saying, I've done everything necessary for the feast. I've paid the bill. The invitation's gone out. You're invited to come. Verse 5 says they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned down their city, and then said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy." Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. So this is a story that Jesus tells, a parable to illustrate Israel's rejection of her Messiah and God's turning to the Gentiles to build his Gentile church Verse 11, when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So we've been invited to a great wedding feast, but here's the thing, you've got to have the right garments to be able to attend this feast that the father is throwing on behalf of his son. And what is the garment? Well, the garment's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You'll not make it to the wedding on the basis of your own good merit. You'll not make it to the wedding by virtue of your own religiosity or your own good deeds because the prophet Isaiah says that my righteous deeds, at very best, are like filthy rags. I need imputed righteousness. I need the righteousness which only Jesus can give me. And those that are given his righteousness, well, these are the ones who were saved and will enjoy fellowship with him for eternity to come. Matthew chapter 25, there's another parable that Jesus tells, just a couple chapters over uh, of 10 virgins, Uh, five who were wise virgins, five who were foolish and they're waiting for a bridegroom. And the whole purpose of this particular parable is to emphasize readiness for the arrival of the bridegroom. The five foolish virgins uh, didn't have any oil for their lamp, and they missed out on the celebration. They missed the arrival of the bridegroom. And so if the parable of Matthew 22 emphasizes the righteousness that's required for this wedding celebration, Matthew 25 emphasizes the readiness that's required for this wedding celebration. Let me ask you this question. Have you been clothed in the righteousness of Christ? And are you ready for the coming of Christ? Because there's absolutely nothing more pressing, nothing more important in life at this very moment than you possessing both the righteousness of Jesus Christ and living with a sense of readiness for his return. Because he is the groom who is soon to appear. And so, again, the point we need to remember is that the father has planned a wedding feast for the son that God might be glorified. So not only do we see the exaltation of the father... In this marriage supper of the lamb but notice secondly the preparation of the bride you'll notice that heaven is singing hallelujah and celebrating because notice verse 7 the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready now the lamb obviously this is referring to jesus And that word lamb is used some 30 times in Revelation. This is reference to his saving work as our substitute, our sacrificial lamb who's paid the price for our sin, who's suffered on behalf of our sin. And so the marriage of the lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. And which, by the way, usually there was a dowry that was always paid whenever these ancient Near Eastern weddings were arranged. You wanna know what the price that's been paid for the bride of Christ is? It's the precious blood of the lamb himself. You've been purchased with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so heaven is celebrating the preparation of the bride, the purity of the bride. This is very different from chapter 18 where the theme is the destruction of the unchaste harlot. The theme here is it's all about the radiant bride who's made herself ready. She's been prepared for her wedding day. Now you can study this on your own, but in ancient times, marriages were much more involved and elaborate than modern day weddings typically are. Wedding customs uh, in the ancient Near East, they were really structured around three key elements. Uh, First, you had the betrothal period or the engagement period. And this was a legally binding contract that would have been signed by both sets of parents who arranged the marriage of their children, which by the way, the older that my daughter, my teenage daughter is getting, the more I like this idea. I just got to be honest. And often those contracts were were signed and agreed upon even before children were born. It was this idea of, A father who says, hey, or a man who says, when I have a son, I want him to marry your daughter when you have a daughter. Because in the ancient Near East, family was the most important thing. We tend to think of weddings, and we tend to think of marriage, and we tend to emphasize romantic love and that kind of thing here in the West, but not so much so in the East. Because in the ancient Near East, they were wise enough to know that if you tried to build marriage on something as shallow as feelings or romantic love, you're going to have some major disappointment at some point when those feelings may not quite be what they were when you first met your significant other. But if there's a solidarity of values and standards and you share common beliefs, Well, there's something binding and cohesive in that relationship, which is why the Scripture says that no believer should ever enter into a marriage relationship with an unbeliever. Or no young lady should ever begin dating or seeing a young boy who's an unbeliever. And she says, well, I think I can reach him for Jesus. Listen, you won't find missionary dating in the Bible. Okay? So you better make sure that the person you're entering into that marriage agreement with or that relationship with, you're both believers. And Jesus Christ is the center of your life. And Jesus Christ needs to be the center of your marriage. So you have the betrothal period, which by the way, this was the, this was the period of, of marriage where Joseph discovered that Mary was with child. They were betrothed. The actual wedding itself had not, been, had not taken place, but the betrothal period was just as legally and binding as the marriage itself. So you had the betrothal period, and then the second component of a wedding celebration in the ancient East uh, was a period known as the presentation. It was a time of festivities that led up to the ceremony itself, and those festivities could last several days. Uh, Some even have said that there are certain celebration feasts or presentations uh, that could have lasted a week or more, and which is something that you really need to keep in mind too. The bridegroom was the center of the wedding in the ancient Near East. It was all about the groom, not so much the bride that was being celebrated. It's totally different than our current customs. The bridegroom was the center. He would present his bride to the gathered guests and friends, and they would gather together for some prolonged period of time. Now, the context for Matthew chapter 25, where where the, uh, the, the virgins are waiting for the procession of the groom with his bride, he's coming to the feast. You know what would often happen? Here's what would happen. Whenever it was time for the groom to take his bride to himself, he would go to her house in procession, would bring, would bring her back to his father's house for the period of celebration and festivities. Now, y'all see where I'm going with this, don't you? you? You see why the scripture, when it talks about Jesus coming for us in rapture, where is it that he's going to take his church? When he comes for his church in rapture before the tribulation period, he's going to take us to the father's house. And after the end of the tribulation period and the festivities begin, it's going to lead up to one final supper before the ceremony itself. And this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so all of this is the imagery, the biblical imagery behind the relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church. It's the relationship that can be compared to that of the groom and his bride. This is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's talking about the church in most beautiful descriptive language. He says, I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And so the church as it stands now, we're betrothed to Christ. We're waiting for His appearing. And even though we've not seen him, we love him and we long for his appearing, do we not? But folks, the time is going to come when we're going to look upon him with new eyes. We're going to see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, the Bible says that we will be made like him. And so heaven is celebrating the preparation of the bride. She's made herself ready. What does that mean? Well, you look at verse number eight. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what's going to be happening in heaven while the tribulation is happening on earth? As the church has been raptured to be with Christ, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ in heaven. The Bema, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we must, or chapter 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Greek word there, translated judgment seat, it's the word Bema. In those ancient Greco-Roman cities, usually in the, ci- the center of the city, you would have an elevated platform where court cases would be convened, uh, where uh, soldiers would give commands to their troops, During the Olympic Games, judges would reward various contestants who won their particular field of competition, and they weren't rewarded with medals, but they were rewarded with crowns, the Stephanos, the victor's crown. That's the imagery behind this idea of you and I standing before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. This is, this is the judgment seat for believers. There'll be no unbeliever there. It will be for believers. And my eternal destiny is not what's being determined at the Bema seat. No, it's, it's rewards my life that I live, the service that I rendered to Jesus Christ while in the flesh, all of that is going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is why the Apostle Paul describes this uh, in in 1 Corinthians chapter number three, where he says you better take care how you build upon this foundation of, of, of Jesus. Build with gold, silver, precious stones rather than wood, hay, and straw. Why? Because each one's work will become manifest, the day will disclose it, it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Even our motives for Christian service are going to be evaluated one day at the Bema. And let me tell you, that which we do for self-advancement, that which we do for self-glory, that which we do out of selfish motives, that which we do in the energy and effort of our flesh alone, all of that's going to be consumed at the Bema seed of Christ, and it's going to be revealed for the wood, hay, and stubble that it is. But the service that's rendered to King Jesus out of a devoted heart, that which is done in the energy and power that God himself supplies through his indwelling spirit, this is building upon the foundation of Christ with Gold and silver and precious stones. I don't want my Christian service to be consumed at the Bema because it was all in vain. It was done for me. It was all a show. No, I want it to be genuine and authentic worship rendered to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so here's the point. God is both a judge and he is a rewarder. And the fact that one of these days I'm going to stand before the Lord, that's one of the most sobering thoughts in life. And and since each one of us will face the Lord and give an account of our lives unto him, let me tell you something. It is incumbent upon us to get ready for that day. Are you ready for the Bema Seat? If the rapture were to happen today, are you ready to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account for the deeds done in the body? Are you ready for your Christian life to be evaluated by the master, because that day's coming. So here's the thing, the idea seems to be that by the time we get to verse number seven in this 19th chapter, the bride has made herself ready. Notice she's clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Here is the bride of Christ triumphant. Here is the bride of Christ spotless and pure, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but also having passed through the bema. A radiant, spotless bride that that is going to be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Wow. We look at the church today, and well, we see a lot of imperfection, don't we? You say, I don't know, sometimes, pastor, I get awfully discouraged when when we deal with certain issues in the church and, you know, relationships tend to sometimes go south in the church and we tend to fight like cats and dogs sometimes in the church and in the SBC and all this kind of stuff. Well, listen, don't be discouraged because let me tell you what's happening right now. The Spirit of God is ironing out all of the wrinkles in this imperfect church. And the church as she is now, she's beset by problems. She's being perfected but the time is coming when we will be made perfect entirely presented as a radiant spotless bride before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you better be careful how you talk about the church because the church is the bride of Christ. Now, I don't like anybody saying anything negative about my bride. I wonder how the Lord Jesus feels when we run down his church and we talk negatively about his bride. It's a sobering thought when we Remember that one day we're going to stand before him. So you've got the exaltation of the father, uh, the preparation of the bride. And then notice third, there's the invitation of the guests to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse nine, the angel says to John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there are going to be more people present at the marriage of the Lamb than just the bride. You know that every wedding has guests who are in attendance. You've got those who come to celebrate the marriage as friends of both the bride and the groom. Well, verse nine is referring to those who are invited to this supper. Who are the guests? Well, included in that number are saints from the Old Testament, saints from the tribulation period who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so the point is the redeemed people of God from every age will be present those saved before the church age, those saved even after the church age, and even though there are distinctions made between Israel and the church, here's the point. We're all going to be there at the wedding as the redeemed people of God saved only one way, by the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And so that means one of these days I'm going to have an opportunity to talk to Brother Moses and say, Moses, tell me what it was like when you led the children of Israel through those 40 long years in the wilderness. Or be able to sit down perhaps with David in the kingdom and say, David, what was it like going from being a shepherd boy, watching your father's sheep, to being entrusted with the flock of God, all of Israel as God's anointed king? I'll be able to sit down with the apostles. I'll be able to talk to John about the things that he saw that I read about in the word. Perhaps talk with the apostle Paul about his missionary journeys and his travels all throughout that Mediterranean world and and hear him talk about how it was all worth it because of Jesus. Folks, aren't you looking forward to your wedding day? I'm looking forward to that day with great anticipation. The father, he's being exalted in this passage. The, the, the bride has been prepared. The guests, they've been invited. And then one final thing that I want you to see from verse 10, it's the presentation of the groom. That's what it's all about. John learns in verse nine that these are the true words of God. It's a message that brings great reassurance to his heart. And he's so overwhelmed that he falls down at the feet of this angel to worship the angel. But the angel says, no, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then notice verse 10 says that the testimony of Jesus, this is the spirit of prophecy. There's a lot of people who approach prophecy as if it were were merely a window into the future and they become fixated on all the details so much so that they lose sight of the big picture. But we're being told here that the testimony of Jesus, this is the spirit of prophecy, which means it's the essence of prophecy to bear witness to him. He is the central figure in scripture and all history. It's all about the presentation of the groom, which will one day happen. And I can't wait for that day. And so our focus and our preoccupation and our attention, it's not to be on all of the future events so much so as it is to be upon the one who's bringing these future events to pass. And it's the groom, it's the lamb, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now folks, let me just bring this to a close this morning. This is what we're waiting for as the bride of Christ. We're longing for his return. We're longing for our wedding day. And when the bottom falls out of life and when things in this world happen that grieve you to the core of your being, you don't have to lose heart because you know that you've got something to look forward to. You've got your wedding day to look forward to. When Jesus Christ comes... And we sit down with him in the kingdom at the marriage supper of the Lamb with all the saints of God from every age. And we join heaven in it's hallelujah chorus. And we say hallelujah, glory, praise be to the Lamb of God. We've got that to look forward to. And it grieves my heart to know that there'll be people who perhaps are being invited even now. The invitations have gone out, but they're, they're, they're not paying attention to the invitation. They've got other things that are more important. They're more preoccupied with what's going on in culture and what's going on in this world and what they've got by means of possessions rather than whether or not they're going to be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. If that's you, let me urge you while you have time and opportunity to repent of your sin and to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand for prayer this morning. Father, in Jesus' name, as we bow and we pray, we're so thankful for these precious promises, Lord, that we've been given as your church. We've got so much to look forward to. Lord, when we think about the return of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church and the coming kingdom, Lord, all of this is sobering and it's a reminder to us as as we're reminded with the truth that we're going to stand before the Bema Seat of Christ and Our Christian service is going to be evaluated and rewarded. Lord, may we not be lazy. May we not be lethargic. God, may we live for what matters most. May we be sober-minded when we think of these things. May we give ourselves to worship, to spirit-empowered works, and to gospel witness because that's why you've placed your church in the world. And God, I pray for these men and women today. Many of them, Lord, they've got perhaps children that are far from God, friends that are far from God. Their hearts are grieved, their hearts are burdened. And think about coworkers and family members and friends and relatives who've not paid attention to the invitation to this wedding celebration. Lord, use us to be enthusiastic witnesses in these days. I think about our confused culture, Lord. So confused, so lost. God, how will they ever hear without a preacher? How will they ever hear of a God who loves them and a lamb who died to save them unless we open up our mouths and verbally declare the gospel in the power of the Spirit? Lord, use us in these days.